It doesn't take a person long, at least for a believer, to learn that sin is a major problem in their life. I don't know if you've discovered that yet. If you have not, um, maybe you haven't been alive long enough. Uh, but nevertheless, it doesn't take long for a Christian to discover that we have a sin problem. It seems like no matter uh, where we go, what we do, there's always their sin lying in wait to take advantage, to upend us, to do its deed, to uh, make our life a struggle. And this happens in every area of life that we have to deal with sin. It affects our relationships. I've noticed that. Our jobs, uh, our uh, hobbies, our leisure time. Even our thought life, we, we've got this ongoing, persistent struggle with sin that we have to deal with on a daily basis. And to add to this, this internal, powerful nature writing within, uh, residing within us, we have an even more powerful enemy outside of us who is conniving to trip us up, to make us fall, to cause us to be ineffective and unproductive in the Christian life, and we have to deal with him as well in this Christian life. I hope that, that uh, there is some hope, right? There would better be, right, if we're going to, you know, navigate this Christian life as we've been commanded to do. It seems like we have an inevitable barrage facing us. What's the Christian to do? What's your plan? Have you thought through that? Have you been you know faithful in considering how you deal with sin well I think today's verses from Psalm 119 offer some hope and some encouragement and some help uh, to those of us who want to be victorious in this whole thing who want to see God glorified in our lives and our spiritual Christian life one of joy and victory these verses I think will help us so I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 133 and 134. I hope you'll follow along. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Two simple-sounding verses, but full of help and assistance for all of us Christians who desire such. Now, a wonderful parallel passage is found in Romans chapter 6. I want to keep your finger in Psalm 119, but turn with me to Romans 6, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. This is Paul's exposition of Psalm 119, verse 133 and 134. All right? This is Psalm's comments on the matter. I mean, Paul's comments on Psalms in the matter. Listen to these verses, starting in verse 11 of, of Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you were not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that, of the one 
whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. There's how Paul explains Psalm 119, 133, and 134. Now, we could just say, okay, go home and have a nice afternoon. But I have more to say about it. Not because I have more to say than Paul, but because I think both need explanation. And so I'm going to exposit for you. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 134 and 135, for your joy, for your spiritual victory and success in following Christ. The first point that you'll see in your bulletin and that coincides with verse 133 is the following. The challenge of internal spiritual pressure. The challenge of internal spiritual pressure. In order to appreciate the importance of this verse, I think we must look or begin at the second half of the verse. Look there with me, if you would, 133b. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. I think what we see here is the psalmist's concern or the psalmist's awareness of the danger of sin. Sin, in fact, can get dominion over you. That's a fearful thought if you're a believer. If you're concerned with pleasing God, if you're concerned with a victorious Christian life, the thought that sin can actually get dominion over me is a fearful thought. Until you're convinced of that, that sin is dangerous, you'll never be all that concerned with resisting it, will you? No. It requires you to be aware of the danger of something before you'll protect yourself against it, which is the case with sin. It's obvious that the psalmist is very concerned about the oppressiveness of sin, by that phrase alone, he says, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. So how dangerous really is sin? Are all sins equal danger? Or are there some that, since everybody does them, aren't all that serious? What would you say in the matter? How would you teach your children on this issue? Do we really need to worry that we may become enslaved to some heinous sin if we're not careful? Thomas Watson wrote the following in his wonderful little book, The Doctrine of Repentance. Sin is a mere cheat. To convince you of the danger of sin, listen to this quote. Sin is a mere cheat. While it pretends to please us, it beguiles us. Sin does as Jael did. First, she brought the milk and butter to Sisera. Then she struck the nail through his temple so that he died. What a date that turned out to be. Sin first courts, then it kills. In, it is first a fox, then a lion. Whoever sins kills, whoever sin kills, it betrays. Sin is like the usurer who feeds a man with money and then makes him mortgage his land. Sin feeds the sinner with delightful objects and then makes him mortgage his soul. Judas pleased himself with 30 pieces of silver, but they proved deceitful riches. Ask him now how he likes his bargain. Are you convinced? Sin is a problem. Sin is dangerous. You're going to be hearing a lot this morning from the Puritans because they had a lot to say on the matter of sin and fighting it. And that's not an apology, just a warning. But sin is a dangerous enemy. 
sin's goal, the reason sin is dangerous, because sin's goal is to gain dominion, to gain dominance over the sinner. Its objective is to make a slave out of every participant. It isn't satisfied with an occasional sin here or there, even if the sin is substantial. Sin desires to enslave, dominate, and subdue everyone. In fact, sin and Satan would rather you be unconcerned with small, regular sins that everyone commits and, and go ahead and sin flamboyantly. You know, the sin that we would normally dread, sin, Satan's going, ah, oh, go do that, no big deal. But he doesn't want you thinking about the small sins. Everybody does it, we think to ourselves. It's no big deal, we say to ourselves. There's no such thing, though, in Scripture as a little sin. It's important to check our daily steps so that we never establish a sinful pattern of even small sins in our lives. And keeping short accounts is critical to this. Checking our steps daily is very important because of the following verse, 1 Peter 1.15. But Peter said, but he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Not just in the big stuff but in all your conduct. Think about your own life. Is holiness a concern to you on the small things? Are you concerned about, you know, those white lies, those little fabrications, those things you think about that no one can even know you're thinking? Are those like small to you, unconcerning to you? Well, it seems that the Apostle Peter thought it was pretty important to consider all of our conduct. This would include your business conduct, family conduct, relational conduct, mental conduct, leisure conduct, hobbies, etc. It's a comprehensive statement. In all your conduct, be holy. Thomas Manton, another Puritan, wrote this. Godliness is not a holiday suit. In other words, you don't just wear it on holidays, on specific great days, like Sunday, for example. Godliness is not a holiday suit, but an apparel that is of constant wearing. And therefore, a Christian is to show himself a Christian in all things, though especially in those things which are solemn and most weighty. Now, this is, I, want you to, I want to warn you about what he's about to say. The following list he's calling most weighty. We would agree with some, and you'll be surprised at the others. Listen. Okay, let me begin here. Though especially in those things which are solemn and most weighty. A Christian in his prayers, solemn, important, weighty. A Christian in his business, solemn, important, weighty. His recreation, eh, a little bit down the list. In his meals, that's solemn, important, and weighty. Seems to be. A Christian in his business, his recreation, his meals... A Christian in the disposal of himself and condition, a Christian in all his conversation. Friends, we must train ourselves to hate every hint of sin and be lovers of obedience. That's what we're after here in the text this morning. To be haters of sin and lovers of obedience. God desires that. The psalmist is pursuing that. It is my goal this morning to convince you of the importance of that. The, re the reason that the psalmist is praying, keep steady my steps, 
is because of the danger that lies if you don't. Keep steady my steps, because if I don't, etc. And what is it that lies there? What is the danger, per se? Well, I'm going to get into the danger specifically in a minute, but think about what your natural propensity is. Is it to drift towards God or away from God? Do you naturally drift towards him, find yourself without any effort desiring more of God, or is your natural tendency to drift away from him? Let me give you the answer. What is the natural tendency of an untethered boat? When you have an untethered boat next to a dock, does it generally stay next to the dock? Or when you get up from lunch, is it a quarter mile out to sea? That's exactly like our tendency. Our tendency isn't to drift Godward, it's to drift away from him every time. That's why this is a serious subject matter this morning. This is why the Puritans were so diligent about preaching and teaching about this. Wouldn't it be great if if our natural tendency was to drift Godward? Wouldn't it be great to wake up more in love with God than you were before you went to sleep? Unfortunately, we have a fight on our hands. Unfortunately, because of our fallen sin nature, we are poor, blind, unstable creatures whose hearts draw us away from our loving Savior instead of towards him. Now, don't get me wrong. Our destiny is to be Christ-like, isn't it? Romans 8.29. That is, in fact, our destiny. It's, it's going to happen. It's promised us. And we look forward to that, don't we? To, to waking up like Jesus. That's certainly our destiny. But until that day, we've got a fight on our hands. We've got a problem to deal with. We remain susceptible to deception. We still enjoy sinning. (laughs) This wouldn't be recorded in Scripture if we hated sin naturally. The fact is, we enjoy sinning, which is why it remains popular today. Our tendency is to run and hide from God when we struggle with sin. Our tendency is to remove ourselves from the solution to habitual sin. We usually act like Adam and Eve did when they sinned, which was what? Running and hiding. The the, the source of or solution to sin, the source of hope in the midst of our struggle with sin is God, isn't it? Why is it we run the other way? like Adam and Eve, our first parents, because that's in our sin nature. That's our tendency. This is also part of the battle. We must run to him for forgiveness, to him for restoration and strength for the battle. We have this conception in our mind that when we sin, God hates us. God's unhappy with you, right? Isn't that our response to sin? Whether or not we would ever agree to that, that's because of our running and hiding, that's exactly our response to sin. But that, in fact, is not God, is it? That's not God's response to those for whom he died. Listen to Thomas Watson, another 
Puritan. Are we under the guilt of sin? There is a promise. Listen to the hopeful promise, Sun Valley Church. The Lord, merciful and gracious, quote unquote, where God, as it were, puts on his glorious embroidery and holds out the golden scepter to encourage poor, trembling sinners to come to him. Doesn't that sound hopeful? Yes. The Lord merciful. God is more willing to pardon than to punish. Are you happy about that? Mercy does more multiply in him than sin in us. I'm so happy about that too. <laughs> His mercy far outweighs my sin. Mercy is his nature. He shows mercy not because we deserve mercy, but because he delights in giving mercy. What a wonderful God we have, sinners, don't we? Oh, man. Friends, there is, in fact, a terrible danger in sin, but we have a merciful God who calls us to himself to reassure us of his love, to forgive us of our sin, to bless us with strength in the battle. So when we go back in and face that sin, there is a better chance of victory. In the challenge of internal spiritual pressure, we must first, though, recognize that sin is dangerous, but God is merciful. Also, though, we must see from the verse here in 133, the promise of victory over sin. Not just that sin is dangerous, but we have a merciful God who promises victory over sin. You see the word promise there in the first line? Redeem me from, or uh, keep me steady, my steps, according to your promise. This, this word promise refers to, of course, what? God's word. Remember the synonyms? Eight synonyms for God's word in Psalm 119. One of them is promise. So, keep steady my steps according to your word. But he uses the word promise strategically here to describe the word of God. He wants you to think of the promises in God's word regarding our sin. Okay? It is in God's word where we find solutions to our sin. The mercy of God and the path to victory are found here in his word. God's word holds the key to the lock of the chains that enslave us. You find yourself chained or enslaved with some chains of sin in your life, whatever they may be. As minor as you think they are, I'll give you, okay, they're minor. Nevertheless, they have you enslaved, you're chained by them. Where's the key to that lock? Is it in that self-help book? Is it in that YouTube channel? Where is it? Where's that key? It's right here, isn't it? According to, according to God, it's right here. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. There are two ideas connected to that phrase, according to your promise, that I want to point out to you because I think it's important to understand what the psalmist is saying concerning victory over sin. 
according to promise. The first idea is that God's word has promised victory over sin and temptation. We all know the verses. We all have them memorized about victory over temptation and sin in Scripture, right? And so this could be the, the promise, or the prayer, rather, regarding the promised victory that we find in Scripture. God, help steady my steps in life as your word has promised you would. You've promised victory. Now please grant it. That's a paraphrase of that first and second line of Psalm 119, verse 133. You've promised victory over my sin in your word. Now please grant it. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Maybe we ought. The second idea connected to that phrase, according to your promise, is this. God's word, called promises, contains the standards by which I must live. Look at it that way when I read it to you. Keep steady my steps according to the list in your promises. According to the list in your word. Help me live that way. Is another way, second way, an important way to view the verse. And by the way, both are intended by the psalmist. He wants you to think about both. And you might need to spend some time on that phrase in this verse. I'm thinking about that before you come there, but here we are. We've done it. We've seen both. You've promised to give me victory over sin. Here's the way I should live. Help me do it. Grant your promise. Grant the strength to do it. That's the prayer that we find in this verse. Many, unfortunately, who seek God's mercy to deliver them from the guilt of sin do not desire his grace to deliver from the power of sin, though. Have you ever found yourself there? You really enjoy the sin, but you would really like to get relieved from the guilt that you feel because of it. You're unwilling to leave the sin. You're not necessarily interested in in God granting you the grace to to leave it. You just want (laughs) the grace for him to remove the guilt. You ever been there? If that's the case, are you serious about that sin? No, you're not. Until you embrace God's power over that sin in your life, you aren't willing to deal with that sin in your life, no matter how much guilt you feel about it. We need to embrace both. The the relief of guilt and the freedom from the sin of that guilt. The power over that sin. That comes through, of course, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in a minute. So to only pray for and focus on reducing our guilt and not defeating the sin reveals the condition of our heart and our, you know, um, enjoyment of the sin, I guess I could say. So the promise of victory over sin, how do we get there? How does it work? How can you overcome that particular besetting sin that you're currently struggling with that you just can't seem to defeat? You just got this urge to say something when you shouldn't. You've got this problem with your mouth. You know, you you can't seem to beat that thing. Or you got the problem with lust in your mind. You can't seem to conquer it. You've got, you know, whatever the besetting sin may be, you just can't seem to beat it. What does this verse have for you? What does these truths here in these two verses hold out? 
Well, let's look here. What's he say? Where's he say that the, our hope is found in verse 133? In your promise. So the first thing is simply to understand that you must apply the word of God. That's the first thing. The application of God's word to my life. That seems so pathetically obvious, but evidently we forget that, don't we, in the midst of our struggle? Because we continue to struggle. And yet how many times have we come across this in Scripture that God's word is the answer to my struggle with sin? We must apply God's word. The, the, the promises of victory over sin in Scripture are ubiquitous. Uh, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it. That means victory over sin. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Where does our sanctification come from other than the truth of God's word? You remember Paul's conversation about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6? Put on the sword of the spirit or take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You want to win the spiritual battle, you better take up the sword of the spirit. You don't go into battle without the sword, do you? No. You take it up. So you may see that the word of God actually has a purpose in defeating sin in your life, from what I've just said. But maybe you're one who, who is persuaded by the day that to see any progress in your life, you're going to have to pick up a current self-help book or listen to a podcast or some other contemporary psychological approach to your struggles. I, uh, I don't want to bash these things uh, too much, but the fact is that you'll see no change of heart, including your motives and affections, without the application and the consistent application of God's word, not a contemporary blog. There's no power in the blog. The spirit doesn't reside in the blog. Unless maybe it's a blog about scripture, I suppose. And, and the reason this is the case, the reason self-help books, self-help video uh, uh, YouTube channels don't help is because of our fallen sin nature. Those things don't address the issue, which is sin. They, they address the symptoms, not the issue. But our hearts can only be set free by the creator of our hearts, by the lover of our hearts, which is Christ. Friends, there will be no victory over any besetting sin without the consistent application of the word of God. And so if you struggle with certain sins over and over, the only solution is to take in the word of God consistently, which means daily. This will bring about victory, relief. The great John Owen said this, there is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails, or is prevailed on, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. Get used to it, in other words. We're in a fight. You're either foiling sin or it's foiling you. You're either prevailing on sin or it's prevailing on you. There is no neutrality in any day. You think, you fool yourself into thinking at least, that you're on a plateau, a spiritual plateau, and you can just kind of coast because of where you find yourself spiritually, that in itself is a deception from the evil one. 
There's no coasting in the Christian life. This is why the psalmist here in this same chapter, Psalm 119, verse 105, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It lights up my path for, you know, for as far as I can see. The path looks well lit, but I need light for my feet right where I walk today. My next step needs light from God's word. Every step in life is either a step heavenward or hellward, toward victory or towards defeat. There are no neutral steps. Think of the Christian life as you on a ladder. How do you step neutrally on a ladder? Can you step neutrally on a ladder? The rungs go either up or down, don't they? If you were to step neutrally, that's sideways. How does that work? I tried that once. It's not good. It never ends well to step neutrally on a ladder. You have to either up or down, heavenward or hellward. That's how it is. Either towards Christ or away from Christ. It's the ladder of the Christian life. This is an important truth. If we do not steady our steps, as is the prayer of this psalmist, it will lead to spiritually unsteady life. It will lead to a spiritually unsteady life. William Gurnall, you familiar with him? A Puritan who wrote the classic um, Christian in Complete Armor. Amazing, amazing, amazing. You should read it. But plan to spend some time because it's thick. But you can get a, you can get a, a copy of Gurnall's massive work in a daily devotional, which Sherry and I read pretty regularly. And it just gives you literally a page you can read in three minutes. And by the end of the year, you're making progress. But it's a wonderful way to prepare for the day of the spiritual battle we're in. William Gurnall, the Christian in Complete Armor Daily Devotional, if you're looking for something. Maybe this will be your uh, 2021 devotional. Who knows? This is what he said in that book. A pilot without his chart, a scholar without his book, a soldier without his sword are alike ridiculous. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah. But above all these, it is absurd for one to think of being a Christian without knowledge of the word of God and some skill to use this weapon. So how do we get this victory? We apply the word of God, right? We apply the word of God daily. Secondly, we must actively resist. Actively resist. That's what this prayer is. It's an attempt to resist the influence of sin. Don't let sin get dominion over me, is the prayer. Actively resist. I'm not sure how many fights you've ever been in. But if you don't resist, you'll lose every time. Have you figured that much out yet on the school playground? If you do not resist in a fight, you lose. That's simple. I'm not, I'm not promoting fighting on the playground, by the way. Don't get me wrong, children. Listen to James 4.17, or 4.7 rather. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and lo and behold, he'll flee from you. You resist, he flees. 
1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Sounds a little bit like resisting. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In order not to be devoured, what must you do? But to be sober-minded and watchful. Resist. Pay attention. Be alert. And then, of course, Ephesians 6, the great chapter on spiritual warfare, Verses 10 through 13, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That's active duty, putting on the armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand firm. So the promise of victory over sin on a consistent daily basis requires steady, active steps, requires the application of God's word. It's necessary to be diligent, to be active in the matter. Victory never comes by accident in anything. Have you ever noticed that in any endeavor, business, sports, life? Victory never comes by accident. Thirdly, how do we gain this victory? Participate in the church. Participate in the church. We must connect with other fellow warriors in the fight. We must fight together, never alone. For the glory of God and for victory requires fellowship, requires a connection, requires participation in the church. How are you faring on that matter? I know it's been a little more challenging in our day uh, with all that's going on around us. Nevertheless, are you pursuing a connection, a participation in the local church to fight the fight? Most of you know I grew up in Ecuador, South America, as a missionary kid. And in Ecuador, uh, my parents always required us to go anywhere with a friend. We couldn't go by ourselves. And it wasn't because they were afraid of us being abducted. It's because there were these... uh, packs of wild dogs, excuse me, wild dogs that roamed the city all the time. And so if you were to be by yourself and were attacked by a pack of wild dogs, you'd better hope that you're up against a wall or a fence. Otherwise, you'll uh, find yourself in some deep trouble. So we always had to go someplace with a friend. And so with a friend, what do you think you would do if a pack of four or five wild dogs some who had rabies, showed up, what would you do? You stand back to back, right? You've got your rocks in your pockets and in your hands and you stand back to back and you put up a fight. And with a friend, you usually win that fight with wild dogs. How about life? When you have the wild dogs of the enemy showing up and you're by yourself, how's that gonna go? (laughs) It usually doesn't go well. In fact, it rarely goes well. It's like never goes well. You need to have fellow soldiers. You should never be out alone. As you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you discover an interesting fact. All his commands, think of all the commands that Paul gives in all his letters in the New Testament. All of them are given to a group of people. Not to individuals, except in the pastoral epistles with Timothy. All the letters to churches, 
Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so forth. All those commands in those letters are written to groups of people. That's not coincidence. All the you's of all Paul's letters are plural. Which means those things are to be done together as Christians, plural. Pray without ceasing, plural. Pray together without ceasing is a more literal translation. Teach, plural. Love, encourage, exhort, plural commands. The point, you need the church. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Paul knows, every Christian who's lived a few years know, you will fail at that attempt. You'll end up defeated, upended, discouraged, maybe even out of the church. Maybe even saying, I don't believe this stuff anymore. This is such important stuff. The fourth thing, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit who indwells you. You know that, right? As, or the reason you come to faith, the reason you embrace the gospel is because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. And when he takes up residence in you, what's he do? He begins by converting your soul. He begins by making the gospel and Christ attractive. And so you embrace the gospel. You embrace Christ. And he remains present. He remains there in your soul. What did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in John 16? What did Jesus call him? Starts with an H. The helper. Yes. He is here in me to help me. He's there in you to help you. Be victorious. Rely on the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have a secret weapon. It's called the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, the creator and lover of our souls, indwells each of us. Victory is certain. Now let's move on to verse 134 and see what else this has to say to us on the matter. So we've looked at the challenge of internal spiritual pressure. Now let's look at the challenge of external spiritual pressure. Verse 134, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Let's look here at the spiritual danger of external pressure. You think, that's no big deal. I can can put up with a little bit of, you know, pressure, a little nonsense from my neighbors or my coworkers making fun of me about Jesus. Well, I can deal with it. Don't worry about it. Well, evidently there's danger in the matter. Ecclesiastes 7, 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Uh, have we experienced some external pressure this past year? I know I have, and I know most of you have. Uh, (laughs) External pressure is what we've experienced. And the prophet in Ecclesiastes says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Have you been there (laughs) in the past nine months? close to madness? I think we've all been there. There is danger 
in this external pressure that we all feel. I want you to notice, though, that this prayer in verse 134 isn't a a request for relief from internal pressure or from Satan, but the oppression of man. You see that in verse 134? It's a different oppression than verse 133. One's internal, one's external. Oppression from our fellow man is common, and so we tend to ignore it. We tend to dismiss it. We tend to, oh, I can do this. i got a stiff upper lip. Don't worry about me. But evidently, it's of similar concern to the, to the prophet here, to the psalmist. This oppression from man comes in different forms. I think it also, it, it, the first of all, it comes in the form of spiritual oppression. What do I mean? Well, even though the prayer here is recorded uh, isn't concerning Satan's oppression, there is a way that man can bring on spiritual oppression. There, there's a way that spiritual oppression can cause actual depression in the Christian. It, it comes from spiritual fatigue, from resisting, from taking on that pressure daily without rest. This is, this is a spiritually damaging reality, which is why it's here stated in this context. Constant opposition can have a negative effect on your spiritual health. Constant negative opposition can have, in fact, a negative effect on your spiritual health. This, this oppression can come from someone at work, from someone at home, from someone in your neighborhood. But wherever it comes from, it can bring on a spiritual fatigue, which can just weaken you to the devices of sin. But it also comes in physical oppression, actual physical oppression. I don't mean that your neighbor's going to come beat you up or anything because you're a Christian. Maybe he will, but my neighbors won't do that to me, I don't think. But some physical oppression can actually result in the same kind of thing. Uh, fatigue, depression, sin. You say, well, give me an example. How about this one? David, king before he was king. Remember David? Being chased all over the countryside from... King Saul, who wanted to kill him. That's a real physical oppression. And then you look at the Psalms that were penned by David before he was king. Did he have a concern? (laughs) Yes, he did. He had a real thing going on spiritually because of the oppression Paul was exerting physically on him. Besides David, we have Old Testament prophets, right? Remember Elijah? Physically oppressed from Jezebel to the point where he said what? God, just take my life. I'm done here. He was depressed. Sin had gotten the better of him. He was discouraged. Jeremiah, physically beaten, thrown into a dungeon, up to, up to his armpits in mud. Then you read the book of Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, who, who was, which was written by Jeremiah, And you discover this guy was depressed most of his life. He struggled with the sin of depression, with with not believing that God could really take care of him and use him in his state. It affected him. Don't think it won't affect you. How about the Apostle Paul and the Apostles in the New Testament? You want examples? Look at their life. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians, I am discouraged to the point of death. Because of all this stuff happening to me. I suppose if that stuff happened to us, we would feel the same way. We might even feel the same way if our internet goes down. Right? 
This guy had people chasing him to kill him. Now, let's, let's bring it home. There is physical oppression going on in the state of Washington right now. That's happening, if you're paying attention. Maybe not to the extent that we see in biblical times or currently what we see in China, but oppression nonetheless, the greatest I think we've ever experienced in our lifetimes, at least in this country. The, re the restrictive COVID guidelines that we've all been hearing could in fact disrupt our spiritual obligations and privileges and bring on spiritual depression if we let them. But we started our, our service today intentionally with Psalm 100, which says, come into his presence with no singing and masks on. Is that what it says? Come into his presence with what? Singing. So it really doesn't matter what our esteemed governor says. What matters is what God says. So we come into his presence with singing. To obey a God is more important than obeying man. So what we're currently experiencing is, in fact, oppression, physical oppression. That could become spiritual oppression and depression if we allowed it to. But we're going to do our best not to allow it to. Oppression from external sources may seem, and it can be, very harmful spiritually to us. But I want you to think about it from a different angle. Be positive with me for a second. How can external oppression actually be positive in your Christian life? Think about that question. How can you turn something that could be potentially lethal into something very productive in the Christian life? It's when we get pressure, folks, friends, it's when we get pressure from the outside that we become a little more spiritually alert you notice that? When did David pray? When did King David write his psalms, his poems? Was it when he was having a great time on the throne, eating a lot of nice food? No. When do you cry out to the Lord for help? Is it when you're on a shopping spree in Bellevue or on the golf course at Apple Tree? Or when you got a little pressure that you can't control? We all know the answer. This is the way. God actually uses external pressure for his glory and our good. He brings good out of bad, which is what God does. This is his nature. Many times it takes a little pressure to produce some resolve, some determination, some focus in the spiritual life. And when we don't have that external pressure, we tend to drift away from the dock. <laughs> I can say without a shadow of a doubt that what's happening right now in our culture, in America, around the world, is because too many of, too many of us have drifted away from the dock. This is God's way to tether us up all together at once and bring us in to the dock together. To, to remember our dependence on God. To embrace his goodness and love and mercy in our lives. 
to think more clearly about our need, about our sin, about all these things, that generally are second-tier thoughts and conversations all the time in Christians' lives until there's some pressure. Friends, pressure in the Christian life is an ally, not an enemy. Pressure is an ally, not an enemy. So now let's look down here at the importance of deliverance. It is, in fact, important that we believe that God can and will and does deliver. If we didn't believe that, we wouldn't pray it. But here we have an illustration of a wonderful prayer for deliverance right here in verse 133 and 134. It's an important thing to realize that deliverance is there. It's available. I think this verse teaches us some wonderful things about the Christian life. The author is praying for deliverance. So it's good, the first thing that I think that we need to learn in the Christian life from these verses, or one of the things, maybe not the first, but one, is that it's good to pray for relief from oppression. You know, as Calvinists, we like to we like to repeat, especially in times, uh, disturbing times, that God is sovereign. You know, whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. Right? There's some, there's some comfort in saying that, knowing that, embracing that. And, and it, it is true. And it is for our good. But it may be that these verses teach us not only in the midst of God's sovereignty... There is a need and opportunity and maybe even requirement to pray for deliverance. I think the psalmist was a Calvinist. I don't think I know. If he wasn't then, he is now. Right? And yet he's praying for deliverance. He's not just, you know, uh, I'm a fatalist. I'm a Calvinist, fatalist, same thing. Right? No, not at all. He's praying for deliverance, and he's doing so diligently. So my encouragement to you, Calvinist friends, is don't feel bad that you, that you feel an urge to pray for deliverance when times get tough. It's good and right. Now, that is important to say, and it's also important for me to follow up saying this. It may be that God denies your request <laughs> and doesn't deliver you to the degree that you want. That's when our belief in the sovereignty of God comes into real focus. When he doesn't deliver, when he doesn't answer our prayers as we wish, are we willing to submit to God and, and accept whatever God has for us, to believe that whatever God does, even if our pressure continues, that he is good and sovereign and is doing these things for our joy and growth in the faith. Friends, Jesus himself directly in Matthew 6 commands us to pray for relief from our trying circumstances. You remember that? The apostle says, teach us to pray. His disciples, teach us to pray. And he says, pray like this. And then he lays out, Requests for deliverance from hunger, from temptation, from all these things that are bothering them.
pray for deliverance. It's good and right and brings God glory. How does praying for deliverance bring God glory, whether or not he answers and delivers us? Well, when we run to him for help, we're acknowledging that we are in need and that he is capable of meeting those needs. Whether or not he does to our degree of wish isn't the issue. You remember what the uh, friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said in Daniel? Our God can deliver us from the furnace, but if he doesn't want to, we don't care. Don't you wish you had that attitude? (laughs) Maybe we should pray for it. In Psalm 142, verse 7, it says, Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. God is glorified in delivering his people. At, At any level, he chooses to deliver them. Maybe he's going to relieve some pressure, but then, but then leave the rest of the pressure in place and just give you the strength to stand up under it. Maybe that's what he's going to do. Secondly, another thing we can learn from this verse is oppression, both internal and external, can be an impediment to spiritual vitality. It actually can impede your spiritual vitality, which is why you ought to be motivated to pray about it. We struggle with sin. Sin causes problems. It can cause problems, spiritual problems. So if you're sensing spiritual dullness right now where you sit, maybe you ought to examine yourself. Are you under any kind of oppression? Is there anything oppressing you, either internally or externally, that would bring on spiritual dullness? That's worth thinking about. God may be calling you to prayer calling you to deeper communion, calling you to more trust. Thirdly, what do we learn from these verses is that revenge or retaliation against external pressure is never appropriate. Revenge or retaliation against external pressure, that pressure coming from man, is never appropriate. He doesn't take things to his own hands, he takes it to God, doesn't he? He's praying to God, God, please deliver me. He doesn't say, you know, God, there's this guy down the road that's making it hard on me at work. I, I want you to give me the strength to really beat him down next time I see him at work. No. He's praying to God for deliverance, leaving it in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not ours. Here's what else I want you to hear from these verses. How to pray. Not just that you should pray but how you should pray in the midst of any pressure or trials that you're facing. Number one, pray for God's glory. Look there at the end of verse 134. Redeem me from man's oppression so that my life will be comfortable. Is that what it says? What's the second half of the verse say? So that I would keep your precepts. And what glorifies God more than the keeping of his precepts by his people? That brings glory to God. So pray for God's glory that I may keep your precepts. When praying for deliverance or relief, it's important that we pray first for the glory of God and and his kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33? But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then these things will fall into place. 
This approach to praying for relief trains your affections on Christ instead of on selfish gain, instead of on relying on and enjoying only comfort. This approach to praying, that is, praying for God's glory in all things, reminds you of the purpose of your life on earth, which is to bring glory to Christ, especially in difficulty. There's no greater time that you can glorify God than when you're in trouble, when you're really going through it. Anybody can praise God when things are great. But God receives the most weighty glory when one of his who are going through unbelievable difficulty can still lift their hands in praise of their sovereign God. Like Job, for example. Next thing, besides praying for God's glory, pray submissively. He says at the beginning of verse 34, redeem me. Who's the only one that can redeem your spiritual life? Isn't it God? He's dependent on God. He's submissive to God. God, please, I'm depending on you. Redemption is only a God thing. And so when praying during oppression, whether it's internal or external, we must pray with an attitude of submission, not an attitude of demanding. Nothing worse, well, there probably are some things worse, but it's not good to hear people say, God, I demand that you do this, or I demand that you do that. Who are we to demand God anything? If it be your will, is the submissive prayer. Jesus himself said that. Father, if it be your will. We remain joyful, we remain submissive. God can decide whether or not to give you complete relief or partial relief with added strength, whatever. Pray submissively. I think next thing this, this verse shows, and I'll end with this, is how we can be free to serve the Lord with zeal and joy. How to be free to serve the Lord with zeal and joy. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Lord, do all these things so that I can work diligently with full strength and vigor towards your glory. These, these things, these verses show us the path to zealous, joyful service to the Lord is right here in front of us. Redeem me from man's oppression so that I can keep your precepts. A prayer for deliverance so that you can serve zealously for God. Keep steady my steps according to your promise so that iniquity doesn't, iniquity doesn't burden me down so that I don't get off track, so I don't get derailed in my pursuit of Christ in my Christian life. Friends, this, these two verses <laughs> are gold. And I hope that you think about them a little bit as you struggle with sin internally and oppression from external sources. That you believe that God has you where you are for a purpose, which may or may not be to deliver you, but is for certain for his glory and your joy.
pray with me.